this passage before us, that we might continue to lead a life of gratitude that brings glory to your holy name. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. We'll be considering verses 1 through 10 this evening. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. As you recall, Jesus has recently finished his Sermon on the Plain. And in this sermon, he was giving to his disciples the ethic of the kingdom. How should disciples of the kingdom of God be conducting themselves? And now, Jesus is in the city of Capernaum, and he comes across a certain man, a centurion, who has his six servants. So please turn your attention to Luke chapter 7, as we consider verses 1 through 10 this evening. Please Pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him, to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Faith, belief, trust. These are all synonyms that describe a very, very important part of Christianity. Faith, belief, trust are all ways to uh, describe what Paul says in Romans 3.28. That one is justified by faith apart from works. One of the reasons why faith is so important to Christianity is because it is the instrument of our justification when it comes to standing before a holy God and being justified. That is being made acceptable, being made right before a holy God. That only happens through Christ alone. Christ wipes away our debt, grants to us the treasury of his holy works and merits, and the only way we access the storehouse of Christ's benefits is through faith. Faith is very important when it comes to our standing before a holy God. 
But faith is also the font of sanctification. If you recall what we considered last week, just as all good fruit proceeds from the, the root of a tree, so too all of our good works, the obedience we render to God in this life, proceed from the good root of faith. One way to think of our growth in the Christian life is a growth of faith. So faith is, is very important. It's important to our justification. It's important to our sanctification. And if this is the case, this leads us to a very important question. Well, what is faith? What is faith? What kind of faith is needed to be justified and sanctified? Well, this, this question uh, is a question that has been, uh, which has uh, been discredited, or at least there's been moved to discredit even the legitimacy of this question in our modern period. For instance, the, the Roman Catholic Church and their Second Vatican Council, which met in the years from 1962 to 1965, they adopted a, a certain doctrine called uh, the Anonymous Christian. And what this doctrine taught is that one could be saved apart from Christ and his church, as long as they had some faith in a God and sought to live a, a generally moral life. Now, apart from being quite a radical departure from previous Catholic tradition, this made the question of what is faith decidedly less important. It doesn't really matter what kind of faith you have, as long as you have some sincere faith in something. Furthermore, when you consider our own culture, a culture that's in a lot of ways very spiritual but not very religious, the idea of faith, belief, trust, even prayer and meditation are things that oftentimes are viewed positively. But it's not really important what you're, who you're praying to or what your faith or belief is in as long as it's it's producing some pragmatic value, some psychological value. That's really all that matters. Again, the question of what is faith, the, the character, the nature of faith, is irrelevant. Well, the description of faith in this passage is not fluid or plastic. It's not a, in a, a, a ball of Play-Doh that we can fashion to our own liking. No, the way that Luke describes the faith in this passage is, is a faith that has a certain character. A faith that, that, is, that is needed uh, to have in order to access those benefits, which I previously mentioned. So what is true faith? I'd like us to consider how Luke describes the nature of faith in the life of the centurion. I want us to consider two points in particular. We're going to consider how faith recognizes one's unworthiness before God, and then how faith believes God's word. So faith recognizes one's unworthiness before God, and faith believes God's word. But first, faith recognizes one's unworthiness before God. As I mentioned, Jesus has finished this sermon on the, on the plain, this instruction to his disciples, and now he has moved on to this, the city of Capernaum. And we come across this centurion. 
Now, this man would have been under the, the, uh, the governor, the ruler, Herod Antipas. He was a member, the centurion was a member of the, the, Roman, the Roman army, and he would have been in charge of about a hundred soldiers. And centurions in Jesus' day would have made quite a bit of money. They would have had some wealth to their name, and this man likely was a Gentile, a Gentile who either had converted to Judaism or had some affection for the Jewish people. And this centurion had a servant, a servant in his household, who is sick. Luke doesn't tell us what is plaguing this servant, but in the parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel, we learn that this servant is paralyzed. Not only paralyzed, but he's on death's doorstep. And the centurion valued this servant, not just because he had value in what he did in the household, but this centurion likely had affection for this man. Valued him as a person, as a friend. And he can't do anything about the sickness that his servant is dealing with. He's powerless to do anything. But he hears. He hears that this Jesus of Nazareth, this Jewish teacher who has gained this, this rap reputation that's been spreading like wildfire throughout the countryside, is in town. And so he does what probably any of us would do. He, he sends some of the local Jewish elders and leaders to go and get Jesus. Get Jesus to come and heal his servants. Now the centurion likely didn't tell these leaders what to say. He just sent them. And I'm sure on the way, these Jewish leaders were thinking to themselves, we're going to have to think of an argument here. This centurion's a Gentile. Jesus is a Jew. Jewish-Gentile relations aren't great. We're going to have to somehow come up with a convincing argument to convince this teacher to come and heal this Gentile servant. And these Jewish leaders, these Jewish elders, they come up with, with two reasons in particular. You'll see that they, they first say to Jesus, He loves our nation. He loves our nation. Now again, the Jews did not think highly of, of Romans, especially members of the Roman Guard. And so the elders are saying, it's not every day that we have a Roman soldier who is looking out for the Jewish people. we got to keep this guy in our good graces. He loves our nation. But then notice his second reason. He says, and he built our synagogue. As I mentioned, centurions had some wealth to their name, and, and this man apparently had funded, built the local synagogue in Capernaum. And what may be behind this reason is, is the Roman practice of patronage. Now, in the Roman world, a patron was someone who had wealth, and they would have a number of clients. People who would come to them with, with needs, since so the patron would, would give them money or gifts or, or take care of whatever needs that they had. And the clients then owed to the patron their allegiance, their honor, and their respect. A modern example of this, if you've seen The Godfather, would be The Godfather. The patron was like The Godfather. And what might be behind this is that this, this centurion funded, built the local synagogue, 
And the Jews felt a debt to him. And so when, when uh, the Jewish leaders come to Jesus and say, he built our synagogue, they're saying, well, Jesus, you're sort of obliged, obligated to come and do this favor for this man who built our synagogue. too can fall into this trap of this the same argumentation the Jewish leaders are doing here, where when some difficulty comes into our life, a trial, so easy for our immediate thought to be, I don't deserve it. God, I deserve better. I deserve your blessing because I did X or I am this. We subtly, unconsciously can feel that God obligates. God's obligated to bless us in an earthly or material way when we have no such promise as Christians in, in the scriptures. As we continue in this narrative, we see that Jesus agrees to go with these Jew, Jewish leaders to the centurion's home. And the centurion, likely, as I mentioned, did not tell the Jewish leaders what to say. He did not tell them to try to argue on his behalf why he is worthy of Jesus. Because as soon as the centurion sees Jesus walking from afar with these Jewish leaders, he immediately sends forth his friends to stop Jesus. And he gives, Jesus, uh, he gives them a message to relate to Jesus. And this is what his friends say. Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I, that is the centurion, am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Again, this centurion likely knew his Old Testament well. He knew that as a Gentile, if Jesus, as a Jew, came into his home, he would defile Jesus. Jesus would become ceremonially unclean. He was unworthy. He recognizes he couldn't have that. He couldn't defile this teacher. But more than that, notice what his friends continue to say. He says, I, that is a centurion, do not even presume to come to you. The centurion didn't even feel worthy to approach Jesus outside. This centurion recognizes something, or recognized something of the holiness of God. And in light of the holiness of God, he recognized his unworthiness, his sinfulness, his miserable condition because of the fall of Adam. And this, brothers and sisters, is the first step of true faith. The kind of faith that we are called to have and profess. We need to recognize our utter unworthiness, the sinfulness of our natural human condition. This is something that we not only need to recognize at the beginning of our Christian lives when we first profess faith, but it's something that we need to continue to grow into. The oft-quoted statement that I'm sure you probably have heard, that the more we grow in holiness, the more we become aware of our own sin. This is especially true when we recognize that God's law doesn't just speak to our actions, but it speaks to our heart, our thoughts, our emotions, our dispositions. We start to understand the utter pervasiveness of the law of God. We understand we start to understand the utter sinfulness of our condition. And furthermore, the experience 
we the experience of our joy of our salvation stands in direct proportion to our ability to recognize our unworthiness before God. Listen to how the, the great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield of, of the last century has put this. He says, he says this, There is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we cannot be accepted at all. We are sinners and we know ourselves to be sinners lost and helpless in ourselves. And it is our salvation which gives the tone to our life, a tone of joy which swells in exact proportion in the sense we have of our ill deserved. So let me ask you, are you experiencing the joy for your salvation? As the psalmist says, this joy of our salvation is, is more joy than when grain and wine abound. More joy than any earthly prosperity that can give to us. Are you experiencing that, that joy of your salvation? If not, let me ask you, do you give a proper recognition of your fallen human condition? Of your utter unworthiness in yourself to stand before a holy God? As faith recognizes our own unworthiness before God himself. But we also see in the, in the life of the centurion that faith needs to be placed in the word of God. Faith needs to be placed in the word of God. And we also see this positively portrayed in the life of this centurion. Well, this centurion does not feel worthy to be in the presence of God as we have considered. And so... In response, his solution to this is he asked Jesus through his friends to speak but a word. Just to utter a word. And my servant will be healed. Again, we see that this man had a pretty good understanding of his Old Testament. He likely knew how, how the Old Testament scriptures, the Pentateuch, began. Genesis 1 and 2. Where God used the instrumentation of words to create all things. And he knew that this teacher was not just a teacher, but was the God-man. And this teacher could also merely speak a word, and his servant would be healed. We've seen Jesus heal this way already in Luke's Gospel, where he speaks about a word, and an unclean spirit flee from his presence. The sick are made well. The lepers are cleansed. But this centurion knew the power of, of words, not just because of his Old Testament, but also because of his own experience as a Roman soldier. He knew that he had people above him. And when the people above him in authority spoke, he had to heed their words. He had to submit to those words. But he also knew that he had people under him. And when he spoke to the people under him, they were bound to those commands. He says, you know, when I speak uh, to those under me, when I say go, they have to go. When I say come, he comes. Do this, he does it. Words have power when they proceed from someone with authority. That's the point. When we consider the person who has the most authority in the universe, the one the one and only God the creator of the heavens and the earth, 
If he has ultimate authority, then his words have ultimate power. His words have ultimate power. So this centurion is not possessing some abstract faith in some unknown deity. He's professing faith in the specific word of God. The word which proceeds from the one true God, which has ultimate power. Let us dwell a few more moments on, on this, this idea, this theme of, of the word of God. This is a very rich topic. A topic that can be mined from Genesis to Revelation. As I mentioned, Genesis 1 and 2, we have this repeated refrain, and God said, and God said. God uses the, used the instrumentation of words to create all things out of nothing. So God's word displayed his power, but it also displayed his presence. When he created his image bearers, Adam and Eve, he also used words in his relationship with them to condescend to them. To speak to them. When they fall into sin, uses words to curse them. We see God's power and presence continue to be displayed throughout the rest of Scripture. Think of the life of Abraham. How does that relationship begin? Well, God calls Abraham out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. God gives Abraham promises through words. Fast forward to the nation of Israel. God speaks to, the, to Moses and to the prophets. And Moses and the prophets are, are the mouthpiece of God to the people. Psalm 115 uh, contrasts the, the one true God who speaks with the false idols and gods of the nations who are mute. It's very interesting how the psalmist, the way he contrasts the one true God from, from the false gods is by the absence or presence of of words, words that have power. Furthermore, in Romans and Amos 8, the prophet of Amos chapter 8, God is judging his people by removing his presence from them. And, and notice how the prophet speaks of this, this judgment, this removal of his presence. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of God. God's presence comes in the form of his word. It is no wonder then when we come to the New Testament, in places such as Romans chapter 10, verse 17, when the Apostle Paul says that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of God. Our faith is formed, comes into existence as the Spirit uses the word our faith comes into existence, that faith is tied to the word. It's in submission to that word. Like a, a newborn child comes forth from his or her mother, but yet after birth is completely in need of his or her mother. This is why preaching is portrayed as so important, so foundational in the New Testament church. You know, the Apostle Paul, as he's thinking about the post-apostolic church, the church after the apostles have, have died, he, he tells this to Timothy. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. He tells, tells Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. And he asks, why? It's because God's power and His presence is mediated through His word. God's word and the power of, of creating all things 
out of nothing in creation. But God's word also has the power of recreating us into the image of Christ. I love how the, the Westminster Larger Catechism speaks of, of God's word. How God, it says that God blesses not only the reading, but especially the preaching of the word as a means of driving us out of ourselves. That is, convincing us that our faith should not be in ourselves because we're unworthy, but driving us to Christ. To Christ. So let me ask you, do you believe that God manifests his power and his presence in your life through the word, the scriptures, the book that you are holding in your hand that's written in your language? Do you believe that? Whatever you're going through in your life right now, our first response is to trust, to believe in Christ and his promises. And oftentimes in, in difficult difficult moments and trials and temptations and when they come into our life our hands, our feet immediately want to do something, to alter our situation or our eyes want to see some specific purpose in the situation or want to see the, end, the, the light at the end of the tunnel but it's so hard for our hearts to just trust for our hearts to listen and believe God's promises to us in fact, that's what we're called to do first. We are called first to trust, to believe, to rest in Christ and His promises. And then we can go with our hands and feet and eyes and get busy trying to alter the situation and, and, do our, and, and be responsible. But we're first called to trust, to rest in God's promises for us. So what are you going through this evening? If you're anxious... You're called to trust God's good providence over your life. That nothing comes to you by chance, but everything proceeds from His loving hand. Are you spiritually, emotionally tired? Christ says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Are you fearful? God says that He has so numbered every hair in your head that not one hair could fall to the ground apart from His will. Are you tempted by the fleeting pleasures of sin? Christ says, come to me. I am your exceeding joy. So whatever it is you're going through in your life, you're called to trust God's promises over you and your life. Thus the, the centurion's faith, and faith in the word, like the word of Christ, just speak a word and my servant will be healed. This is a, such a great example for all of us. So instructive for all of us as we seek to grow in faith. Our faith is also in the word of Christ. Let's come back to our narrative here and see, consider Jesus' response, centurion's faith. If you look with me at verse 9, you see that when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus is taken back by the faith of the centurion. He even marvels at his faith. That's striking. You don't hear that very often in the gospel. But why? Why is the centurion marveling? Or why is Jesus marveling at his faith? We first understand, well, Did Israel even really have faith during this time? 
Because Jesus contrasts the centurion with the faith or lack thereof of Israel. When a few chapters from now, Luke 11, Jesus says this of many in Israel. But they, they seek for a sign. They want this explicit sign done before their eyes that will, that will leave no shadow of a doubt of who Jesus is. Beyond the miraculous things that he's already done. Furthermore, in Luke 23, verse 8, as Jesus uh, appears before Herod Antipas, the, the one to whom this centurion is, is employed by, this, this Herod says, when he saw Jesus, that he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. Again, Herod was looking for a sign. He wasn't looking to believe, he was looking for a sign to see. This leads Paul to say in 1 Corinthians 1.22, that the Jews seek signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ and Him crucified. Israel didn't want to hear a word, they wanted to see a sign. There are many people today, and people that in your own life who, who've said, you know, I would believe in God if he would just show up and miraculously prove himself before my eyes. But until then, I'm not believing. Faith, however, is about believing a word, believing what we hear. Paul contrasts. The, he, the, the ear and the eye. He says we walk by faith and not by sight. There's one day, one day is coming when our faith will give way to sight. We won't need faith because we will see clearly. But this age is an age of faith. This age is an age of faith. We do have signs. We have the created order, which Paul says in Romans 1 testifies to all people of God's existence. We have the sacraments for the people of God. But even these signs are subordinated to the word which we hear. And that was so, that's what was so marvelous about the centurion's faith. He recognized. He recognized this point. It was the age of faith. Faith in the word. And verse 10 indicates to us that this was not a blind faith. But it actually healed the servant, as we, this narrative concludes. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Because our faith is not a blind faith. It's a faith in God's word, which has actually done something. It created all things. It healed the centurion's servant. It's the same word that has granted us new life. So what is faith? Well, without being exhausted, this narrative has, has 